Are you ready? Ready to release internal pain? To find confidence, clarity, and direction for your future? To live a life of meaning, fulfillment, and contribution? To trust your intuition again, but something's been holding you back? You've come to the right place. Welcome. I'm Ian Hawkins, the host and founder of the Grief Code podcast. Together, let's heal your unresolved or unknown grief by unlocking your grief code. As you tune in to each episode, you will receive insight into your own grief, how to eliminate it and what to do next. Before we start, I have one request. If any new insights or awareness land with you during this episode, please send me an email at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com and let me know what you found. I know the power of this work and I love to hear the impact these conversations have. Okay, let's get into it. Chloe Bisson is fast-paced, she's high energy, and you'll hear that very quickly in this conversation, but it hasn't always been that way. She experienced deep depression. Uh, What's interesting is she'd actually had depression for many years prior to that from a young age, but she'd done a great job of suppressing it. And then when everything sort of ground to a halt in her life and it was pointed out to her that's what she was going through, that she'd been suppressing it, then everything came crashing down. Like with most people who come out the other side is that there's so many lessons from that. And the lessons that Chloe's learned has helped her not only to bring herself back to a place, not, not who she used to be, but who she wants to be and allowed her to create an incredible business but she's now helping other people as well because like with anyone who's been through tough times, we don't want to see anyone else go through what we've been through. If you've experienced any depression, perhaps if you didn't even identify it with being depression and you've just had struggles where you're unable to move forward, you get so much value out of this. I love that she uses similar tools to what I do and I really enjoyed this conversation mainly because I already knew Chloe and had a good relationship, but it, it flowed really nicely because we were talking the same language on so many different things. Enjoy. Hi everyone. And welcome this week's guest, Chloe Beeson. How are you, Chloe? I'm good, Ian. Thank you so much for having me. How are you? Going very well. How are you? Yeah, fantastic. Excited to be here. Excellent. So, where do we start? You said something to me before we jumped on, which was around you experiencing depression, but also you'd been experiencing it for some time before you actually realized that's what it was. Mm-hmm. And that's something I can relate to myself in my own journey. I remember my kinesiologist saying to me, you know, we're going to clear some stuff around depression. And I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, oh, yeah, you've had it since you were 15. And I'm like, <laughs> what? This is like when I'm in my 40s. So tell us about if you didn't know it was depression, how was it showing up and why didn't you know it was depression? Yeah. Every time people say their stories, it happens to so many of us. Um, I was completely in denial. So I had been feeling unwell, like physically unwell, feeling sick. Um, I thought it was to do with my job. I wasn't sure if I was enjoying my job. And I remember waking up every morning feeling queasy and dreading going to work. And I remember, I think I was making a cup of tea one morning and I heard some woman on the news saying that she'd, she was battling depression and she was explaining the symptoms. And I was like, hmm, kind of similar. But then the denial kicked in and it was like, no, I'm fine. I'm the most positive person everyone's ever met. I'm always smiling. I'm always chatty. And then it was actually my mum said, I think we should take you to the doctor. And honestly, Ian, I was sat in the doctors and it's a family doctor. So she knows me really well. Known me since I was a baby. And um, I honestly thought she was going to give me some tablets for my stomach ache. And she turned around within about 10 minutes and she says, you've got severe clinical depression, not just depression, not just clinical, severe clinical depression. And she said, um, she said, yeah, you've, I I believe you're in denial about it. And it's, it's, it's quite bad, Chloe. And I was sat there and I was actually quite rude to her because I was like, there's no way. Like I was just in complete shock, you know, let's get out of here. Like this is, you know, just just go see somebody else. And my mum was quite like calm, like Chloe, sit down. Let's, let's talk about this. And so long story short, I left and she signed me off work for six months, right? Whoa. She was like, you just need some time. And she said to me, but this was a Wednesday. And I remember it so vividly. 
And I went home and my mum said, come and stay with us for a few weeks because I lived on my own. She went, come and stay. I was like, I'll come and stay for a little bit. And she said, the doctor said to me, it's Wednesday today. I'll ring you in two days on Friday and see how you're feeling. But just take it easy. And there's me still thinking, Ian, this woman's crackers. Like, she's mad. <laughs> like, I'm fine. And so I was at my mum's house and we were just, you know, having two days off. And I was in this like, yeah, okay, great. I'm having a bit of a holiday. Yeah. And um, the doctor was right. And within two days the whole denial had lifted and it was like a ton of bricks and I remember when the doctor called me and she was like so how are you feeling and I just burst and says because it was like she'd almost popped that veil of ignorance and it was like then it was just this overwhelming feeling of just sadness and heaviness and it was actually quite impressive to think that I had the power to hide all of that totally unknowingly for, for so long yeah and, and as humans we get really good at suppressing stuff right mm-hmm Oh, yeah, yeah, I was a master at it. Little did I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So if you think back to those times, how like how else did it show up? Like, Because mm. for me, it would have burst out in uh, frustration at different times. It would have burst out in uh, being like treating people close to me, like sarcasm, for example, like mm. all different ways to, to try and cut other people down to make myself feel better, which I didn't realize at the time. And actually some of this is just kind of dawning on me now to, to, mm. to break me out of the, the down place I was in. Yeah. For me, I, I, I would actually say the, the, the rage and the, you know, sarcasm actually came afterwards when I'd accepted it and I'd realized it. Um, but what did happen was I just had, the, I had random phases of just numbness so I would be, you know, I had a whole weekend of no work and my friends were busy. And I think, you know, I'm just going to just literally just numb on TV and not think about anything for two days. And that, I, I honestly thought that was my way of relaxing. Like I had a really stressful job. Everyone says have time to have downtime. And I was like, oh yeah, this is healthy. I'm having downtime. It wasn't a healthy downtime. It was just, I'm going to ignore the world for two days. And it was things like that. I never had the sort of traditional depression where people don't want to leave the house or I had that after I'd realized it. But at the time, my denial was so powerful. I was so high functioning. I was still going and doing my job. I wasn't showing up badly at work. No one, no one knew. So when I started actually opening up and telling people, everyone thought, they were like, there's no way she can hide it this well. And it turns out I could have. Yeah, wow. It's amazing, isn't it? And and I'm just thinking about different people I know and, and when they run into problems, it's exactly the same conversation you have. You're like, really? They, they're not going well? And it's just another example that we shouldn't make assumptions about what's going on in people's lives because we see the smallest fraction of it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think we're, we – we think we know what depression looks like because we see on social media, I talk about it. We see it on TV. We think it needs to be a certain way. And I remember my best friend and we were, I was uneducated about it. They were uneducated about it. No one had ever experienced it, especially in our town. No one talked about it if they experienced it. After I started opening up and as you're probably telling, I'm quite an open person. I'll tell anyone anything if it helps. Um, everyone, that's when other people start coming to me and going, oh my God, I felt like that. Or I've had depression. And it was like so many people telling me and I thought, God, how many of us have stayed silent? But my friend was so uneducated. I remember the first time I bumped into him or we met up after my depression and he said to me, oh, I actually came around. He said, I thought you'd be crying more. And I was like, no, that's not what depression is always like. You know, that's part of it. It doesn't have to be. And I think it's just, it comes in so many ways and it's all, everyone's got different coping mechanisms. Mm. So it, it just depends on how we choose to cope and whether we want to hide or not to other people. Nice segue. This conversation is going to flow nicely because that was okay. my next question was like, what what coping mechanisms did you develop that had you shielding yourself from the mm. depression? Yeah. In terms of what shielded me before I realized it, like how did yeah. I like myself? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, threw myself into work. So I... I had put my whole life focused on my career from a very young age without going to too much backstory. My parents divorced when I was quite young. And so when it came to choosing to go to university, we couldn't actually afford it. So where I'm from in the UK, you have to pay quite a lot. I'm what they call overseas. So I have to pay a huge amount to go to university and we just couldn't afford it. And so I went into education. I didn't go into education. I left education at 18 and went straight into work. But I still wanted to prove myself that I was still worthy of having a good career. And so I studied and worked at the same time. And so from 18, I was constantly proving myself. So then by the time I was 21, I was a chartered accountant. I was a manager. By the time I was 24, I was a director. 
And it was like, I just wanted to prove myself to everyone and to myself that I could get so far. And so I was using work as an escape. So when I look back to what the core trigger of my depression was, I can see that's when my busyness actually got worse. That's when I threw myself in because that was the fix I was getting. If I felt bad outside of my world, when I was in work, I felt great. And I got that hit and I got that kick and I got the affection mm. and I got the accomplishment and I felt that success. And that's when I noticed that is, and it still is something I notice about myself now. And that's one thing I've noticed going on this journey the last sort of, well, where are we now? 10 years it's really been a process of noticing my triggers. And now if I notice that even now, 10 years on, if I notice that urge to just go, oh, I feel a bit low. Oh, I'm just going to do a bit of work to get that fixed. It's my flag. And I'm like, whoa, this means I need to take a step back. And it was in hindsight, I noticed that I was doing that a lot in my life. Mm, interesting. So if you look at that uh, from that perspective of trying to prove yourself, mm. did was there any behaviors about yourself at that time that you didn't like or was just, no, this is great. I love it. Good question. I've, I'd always been a people pleaser. So I'd always been the sort of person that always wanted to make other people happy. And I think I was always trying to prove to my parents, to my loved ones that I could still get results. Even if we weren't, I wasn't going to university because it was very like the school I was in, it was very much like, if you're not going to university, well, you know, what's the point really? Um, and I remember going to one actual class with the teachers um, learning how to apply for university. I don't have that in Australia, but here they have a whole segment of just how to apply and pick university. And I remember the teacher actually saying to me, oh, you're not you're not applying for university. I said, no. She went, okay, well, you know, there's no point you being in this room, in this classroom, then, you know, go and have a free period, go and enjoy your time and your like, extra lunch. And I was like, what help are you going to give me then? So I think yeah. there was always this experience of, trying to please people, trying to prove myself to people. And I've noticed that in my behavior that I would say, I wouldn't say it was something I don't like, but it's something I've got to be very cautious of because it's a pattern I can fall into so easily that I've learned from that part of my life. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to uh, just just go with something I've just noticed now that's reminded me of what I already knew of you. So we haven't probably chatted for about five or six years, but I remember from that time that you were always – uh, high-paced, efficient, uh, straight to the point. And, and even now, like you're telling the story almost 100 miles an hour because it's just how mm. you operate at your best, right? So yeah. that must, like having that switch to go into that space, I'm sure it's got lots of positives, mm. but does it have a downside? Oh, gotcha. So I had a big realisation about six months ago. So Ian, you're absolutely right. We, in, my, in my team, we call it Chloe Speed because I've built up quite a big team of 15 people and it took a while to notice that not everyone's going to go at Chloe Speed. And actually, yeah. Chloe going at Chloe Speed is not that healthy half the time. Yeah. So I'm really conscious of making an effort to slow down because one of the things I noticed was in our world and personal development, you know, you set a vision at the beginning of the year and you process your goals and you remove the limiting beliefs and you achieve it and then you reflect on it. And I found myself feeling like I was broken because I was constantly redoing my vision. And I kept thinking, is my vision not big enough? Because people, you know, everyone else has got one vision for a year or three years. And I'm in three months wanting to change my vision. And I used to think I was broken because I used to think, well, maybe maybe it, it's not my true purpose. Maybe my vision isn't exciting enough. And what I realized was actually because I am very highly efficient. I do do things quite fast. And if I get an idea, I've learned now to spend a bit of time processing it, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I do actually do implement quite fast. I'm, I'm such an action taker, which definitely has its downsides um, at times. But what I've learned is that I do tend to process my visions quicker because of that. And so, I, I mean, I, I set an intention at the beginning of this year to launch my own podcast, my own show. And we started recording in February. We launched it by June, awesome. you know, and, and, and I've loved the journey. And now I'm like, now what? You know, some people spend two years planning something like that. And yeah. I used to think I was broken. But what I've learned now is that actually it's a strength, but it also has its weaknesses with that. And, oh, my God, how long have you got? The amount of actions I've taken that I could have just spent a, a week to think before I've just gone, let's do it. You know, yeah. which yeah. It meant that I've failed fast and I've learned fast as well. So there's definitely pros and cons to it. Yeah, yeah. I do a bit of work with uh, personality and, and uh, strengths and that sort of thing and, mm -hmm. and the big picture thinker, right? You've already seen oh, yeah. the clear vision in your head, so you're just like, let's just do it. Yeah. 
and and then you've got team members who are kind of on the opposite side of the spectrum and and uh I'm sure they're valuable for you to slow you down and just get get you uh okay let's let's get to the nuts and bolts of this exactly it's funny you yeah. say that actually we did the assessments with our team i've I've trained four different personality profiling right and they're all you know they're all very similar they just yeah. overlay each other um and I'm the big picture thinker, the visionary, and a lot of my team are detailed orientated very consistent people like the process and then I've got a bunch of team especially in my coaching business who are yeah. very like selfless givers carers and it's stuck I'm, I'm very caring don't get me wrong but it, it we're very different in our core personality and it is quite an interesting dynamic when you see us as a group and you know they slow me down and I have to read their body language and their facial expressions to go Maybe this is their way of saying, Chloe, can we just think about this? <laughs> uh, they're too polite. Love it. Yeah. Uh, so what's the downside? Because there'll be plenty of big picture thinkers listening to this thinking, yeah, I fall into that trap as well. So mm. so what? where does that go wrong and how have you learned to deal with that? Mm. Yeah. Fantastic question. So it can go wrong fast if you're a big picture thinker, if you also take action too fast. So Big picture thinkers, often their biggest fear is failure. If you go into like the layers that I've learned after going through this, which means we often push through to get results. We just want to get results. And there are things on the way that we can forget. So, you know, it might be steps in a process that we might skip or cut corners because we just want to get the result. There might be people that we may be not as supportive to because we just want to get the result. So often what I find as a big picture thinker, my advice to anyone else that's like this is surround yourself with people who are not all big picture thinkers. Because if you've got a team that are all big picture thinkers, you're all going to go in that direction and you're not going to have anyone to challenge you. Because also what I've learned in years of managing teams with this part of my personality is not big picture thinkers are quite hard to challenge because they're so passionate about the vision pair that with someone who can be quite inspiring and convincing it's very hard to get someone to say no to you and I've probably trained my team for about two years in this is how you say no I want you to say no and it's you know because they're also they're like oh I love the idea though and I'm like but have we thought it through properly so my advice to any big picture thinkers is surround yourself with some analytical people some really like people focused compassionate people some detail orientated people because they will be thinking of sides of the picture or the project that you've not thought of and they'll think of things and you'll go oh actually and yeah you'll probably still be the one to come up with the solution because you are the big picture thinker and you're the results focused person but it's about understanding that everyone's part everyone has a part to play and they all complement each other if you've got the right team love it so yeah. good can I just go back to the uh, the uh, depression diagnosis because we got a bit sidetracked there, but there was all a very good sidetrack. When when the reality starts sinking in, and you said then it all sort of everything just crumbled. Mm. How so? Like we just like you said, you were high functioning up to that point. Did you then become non functioning? Completely. Yeah. Yeah. Completely. So. Yeah. At that point, that's when the traditional signs of depression kicked in. So that was when I didn't want to socialize with anyone. That's when I didn't want to leave the house. That's when I struggled to even go go and buy some milk and some sugar on the in the corner shop. You know, it was just it was one of those things where I just didn't want to do anything. If there were days where I could get from the bed to the couch, it was a success. So a lot of people face that earlier in their depression. For me, my high functioning ability and my denial protected me from all of that. So when I say it hit me like a ton of bricks and everything came crumbling down, it, it was then, it was almost like the way I describe it because I'm quite a visual person. It was like the, the shell came off and then it was actually what depression is like. And that's when it really kicked in. Um, I remember there were times where I was, I was, I lived in a block of flats and inside there was a, a supermarket. So I didn't even have to go outside the building. I was so anxious to go into that shop in case I saw anyone. What would I say to them if I looked different? You know, if, if what the shopkeeper would say to me, what if I didn't have the right cash on me or the right amount of money? What if my card failed? And it was what I noticed now after going through a lot of therapy through it was my denial of my depression made me anxious and that actually created an issue with anxiety because then I became paranoid. It was like, 
how did I not know this about my brain? How has this, how has this been going on in my life? And I don't know, Ian, if you've experienced this from your, you know, it was going on in your life for quite a while as well. I was so just like unaware. And then I became paranoid. What if it comes back again and I'm not aware? How, how will I handle that? You know, wh- why didn't I notice it? Am I broken? Did everybody else see it about me? And that anxiety then, it started with the fear of not noticing my depression and it just spread. It got to the point where I remember about three months in. So remember, I was off work for six months. Halfway through, I thought it was getting a bit better. And I agreed to go out for dinner with a few friends. And they booked the restaurant. And I was like, hang on, which restaurant have you booked? Which table are we going to have? What, who, where will I be sat on the table? And it was like my brain. I had to pre-plan what seat I would be sat in because of would I be able to see the door? Who would be able to see me first? And it was just like so many irrational thoughts that were my day-to-day. And then also, don't forget, pair that with not having a job because I'd been not signed off. I had nothing else to do but think every day. And yeah, it, was wow. just, it just became such a, a spiral. I can relate to that, but probably in a little bit of a different way. I think whenever you go through really challenging times and you start sort of processing and coming out the other side, that, that part of the process is that paranoia. I've got an individual episode on exactly that, that the mm-hmm. paranoia of awakening because it's like suddenly you're going, yeah, like you said, you start going, did everyone else know this? Am I on some inside joke and everyone's just been really kind and gentle to me but really like they've been looking at me, yeah, like all sorts of thoughts go through your mm-hmm. head. I started thinking maybe I'm one of those special people that, that you see there that everyone's you know, really sl- slow with and I'm like, what is going on? <laughs> but, but, the, but the anxiety thing makes sense, right? So mm-hmm. when we suppress anything, then it will turn into something else. Now, for me, probably not so much anxiety. Mine was just um, like shut down. That, that's where mm-hmm. suppressing it would then lead to shut down. After, again, the awareness piece came. Before then, it's just carry on and cope, and I would have probably been shutting down, but just I oh, just got to keep going. But I've had people, if they're suppressing anger, then their default is anxiety. So I guess it doesn't really matter what big emotion it is, but if you if you're suppressing, it will manifest as something else until it gets your attention. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So then you went to low functioning. Mm-hmm. How did you then come out the other side? And I know that's not a short answer. Like, yeah, was was there were there battles there through that time? Were there moment, light bulb moments where you're just like, oh, this is starting to make sense? Yeah, definitely. So, where I'm from, the health system is terrible. Let's just put it out there. So, you know, yeah. I was on private insurance, which means the company I worked for paid for it, and I still had to wait 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 eight weeks to see a psychologist. So, wow. you know, given how severe it was for me, I thought, what are people who have not got this severe level of this experiencing? And so, I was just in such a low place for, for weeks and. My my dad actually had contacted my auntie. Now, I hadn't been this close to this auntie in the past, but she's a lovely person. We just haven't seen each other that often. Turns out she was a life coach. And I had no idea what a life coach was at that point in my life. I yeah. didn't even notice I had depression. So I was so <laughs> not awake, it's unreal. And um, and she came around for dinner. She said, I just want to have a chat with you. And I said, okay. I honestly thought she was like a company trainer or something. I had no idea what she did. Yeah. And she said to me one very, very powerful question. She said, Chloe, what are your core values? And I sat there, Ian, and I was like, what are they? You're right. Because all I'd known was company values, you know, painted on the wall in an office and integrity and honesty and, you know, communication. And so when she said, what are your personal values or what are your core values? I thought, what's she talking about? And that was where it was like this eye-opening experience of I'm allowed to have those was honestly my reaction. Now, knowing what we know, isn't that just like, now I'm like, of course you've got values, but I was so, I'd become someone for some, so many other people that I'd completely lost myself. And that is so cliched. And so I then just start. I honestly started from the lowest point I could possibly be at with a blank piece of paper. And she said, right, I'm going to give you assignments each week and I want you to work on this. I personally thought she was doing it to distract me at first because then I wouldn't be doing anything stupid and I'd have something to focus on. 
But what she did was gave me different exercises. She gave me the core values. She gave me beliefs exercise, the wheel of life, like every traditional sort of method you go through in the coaching world. And it just slowly unraveled me. And it was like in a good way, it unraveled the negative thoughts, but it also then helped me see that there are other parts of my life other than my career, which I just put my blinkers onto to hide from the pain really. And then I remember when then I then had the, the psychology appointment and I'm not saying I was fixed, but I was going in there going, well, you're a little bit late because I've already done a hell of a lot of the, you know, the other work. Yeah, um, yeah. And then I had the session with her and she said to me, Chloe, I think you've done, you have done a lot of the psycholog- psychological work. She said, but you're still not really moving much. You're still in your house every day. I'd encourage you to get do some exercise. And so it was the combination of that work and the exercise. And I started forcing myself one minute. It was like, just do a walk around the outside of our building. Then it was like, let's, I'll walk here. And slowly I got to the fact that I was going to the gym every day and it was just walking on a treadmill, listen to music. But that physical change of my environment was like, then I felt normal again. I felt, you know, I was on the, on the up and I now know why with all the studies I've done since why that, why that was the effect it had. Mm. What, what I love about that is that it was so subtle from her that you, you were doing it without even realizing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And at the same time empowering you because you were taking the action. Yeah. That's yeah. cool. And that question about values, I imagine, because that would have been the case for me too. Like when, when you start doing coaching, it's one of the, like you said, it's one of the early things that you need to get in place. But back then you, you don't know what you stand for. So yeah. As a people pleaser, I stood for everything. Like I wanted to defend every cause. I wanted to be there to like I used to like emotionally engage in all these different things. And thinking about it now, I see so much of that now. People mm-hmm. are avoiding their own stuff by throwing themselves into all these different causes. Yeah. So I'll come back to causes because uh, I'd like to hear more about that from you, but you go through those early stages and you get back exercising and then and then what's the well i guess it's important to pause and just realize how important it was for your mum to actually intervene in that place yeah do you think yeah. about that if like what would have become if she hadn't yeah do you know what it, it's weird because she and i i talk very openly about this my mum knows my opinion on this so you know she's definitely gonna be surprised by this but she probably struggled with my depression more than me um, because she intervened and she, I think she saw it, she noticed it. She'd had depression at a young age as well and she had postnatal depression with me. So she, I think, she never told me this at the time, but I think she saw the signs. But when it then was, it transpired how bad it was, she really struggled. So she, I, we've talked about it a lot now, but what she shared is that it was really hard for her because she couldn't help me. You know, mm. I'm her only child and she wants to help me to be the best version of myself. And she's also always been motivating me to do better and achieve more. And because that's what she values as well. And it just, she just couldn't help. She, you know, those moments where she was trying to help me and I was just in tears and I was low and I was anxious and she was really stuck. And I, I genuinely believe I've been through it since with family members who have had depression. I actually would say it's harder for people around the people experiencing it because you love the person so much and you really want to help, but you just can't. And it got to the point where my mum was saying things like, oh, mind over matter, snap out of it, you'll be fine, you know. And we all know, she knows now as well, that that is the least helpful language you could possibly say to anyone that's facing a mental illness. But it was her only way of getting on top of her feelings. Because if she had gone there with me, she possibly could have stayed there with me. She could have gone low and gone depressed, you know, who knows. So I genuinely believe that's her coping mechanism. And yep. she openly says now, because I run a lot of events and I wrote a book about my depression and um, she speaks at my events sometimes. She's like, yeah, I've learned so much from Chloe because of what I used to do. And I, she's like, I was the one that was saying these things because she knows now it wasn't supportive, but it was just how un- uneducated she was as well. Mm. And as a parent, I imagine guilt because mm-hmm. like I've done this, like what, what what have I done that my child's like this? Yeah. Shame, all of those things that go hand in hand with grief. And the other thing that comes to mind is you said there about harder, it's harder to help other people through the, the depression. And again, that, that marries up with all forms of grief. It, it's, mm-hmm. I know my mother-in-law talking about when, when she was sick, so she's a, a cancer survivor, 
she knew she was going to be okay, but everyone else around it was just in mm. panic mode because they're looking at all the different possibilities. And I just wonder if that's the case through all levels of grief where, mm. where the person dealing with it's able to cope, but everyone from the outside, they're not really sure what to do because we don't have these skills, right? Yeah, exactly. And also a lot of the time, yes, with, you know, physical illnesses, you can see sometimes, but even physical illnesses, sometimes you can't see anything, especially yeah. with mental illnesses, you can't. And so we struggle to, from my experience of how psychology works, is we struggle to risk assess. Uncertainty creates that reaction because yeah. we can't see it. You know, okay, I can see that you've broken your leg. Well, in my experience, that takes X, Y, Z amount of time to fix, for example. But when you can't see something, you don't know how severe it is. You can't, if you've never experienced it yourself, maybe it can be quite challenging. And also we're like, well, how do I help you? You know, especially when it comes to mental illness or any sort of grief, you know, grief can show up in sadness. It can show up in anger. It can show up in loads of different ways. I don't know how you're going to, I don't know what version of you I'm going to see today. And yeah. so there's so much uncertainty that comes with it. And I think, you know, it's hard for the person experiencing it. But imagine being that person that doesn't know how the person's going to show up or what to say, what not to say. I literally wrote this in my book. It was a chapter of conversation with my mum, pretty much. It wasn't said like that at the time, but it was like, this is what not to say. This is what to say instead. Because I wish someone had given that to my loved ones when I was going through depression. Mm, so good. And I think that's the case, again, if you look at grief from a loss perspective, from from maybe someone passing away, often people don't know what to say. And then they say things that really not helpful. So similar scenario, or they just retreat and say nothing at all because they, they're yeah. not sure. And having been on both sides of that, like it's it's tough because, again, unless you've got some strategies and tools, then you're not really sure what to do. So I was going to ask this later, but it seems appropriate now. So you have a business that doesn't necessarily relate to this, but is there a, is there a part of you that has a real desire to help people through? I mean, it sounds like you're doing it with, with yeah. people you know anyway, but is there a desire to have a big positive influence in this space for you? 100%, yeah. And it's funny, Ian, because you mentioned that it doesn't really connect my business and it doesn't. But what I've noticed is my business is slowly niching into this area. So what I, I run a book publishing business and a press and PR business. And yeah. I'm noticing now that I'm attracting people because the whole brand is inspired. So the podcast and the, the, the book publishing business is called Inspired by Publishing, right? Yeah. And I'm noticing that I'm attracting people that have inspiring stories, that have self-help books, personal development books, spiritual books, healing books. And I'm noticing that my passion for this and my experience in the, the depression and the anxiety and everything that comes with that emerging together. And actually now I'm noticing when I'm selecting books to publish, I'm always leaning more towards, oh, I'd love to learn how that, I'd love to read your story. I'd love to, and I'm noticing, and you know, I've had some incredibly successful people that teach things that have nothing to do with this, but I'm like, oh, I'd rather publish that person's book because I really, I'm really interested in it. So it is definitely marrying up. And I think the mission I'm on now is to help other people learn that they can inspire others through their story. So many people are ashamed of their story. You know, I can't tell anyone. I remember when I, when we first met, we were both, you know, working with a mentor and I was just starting to tell my story of my depression very early on in my journey. And, um, and I remember other people saying to me, you can't tell people that you had depression. No one will invest in you if you've been had depression. People will think you're broken. You know, you, you won't want to have a business if you're depressed. And I was so just like shocked by that because, you know, people thought I would be broken and I wouldn't be inspiring. But what I've learned now and what I try and encourage people to do is your inspiring story matters. And if we hold on to it because we're ashamed or we're scared or we're nervous, we're not doing, we're doing a disservice to us. We're doing a disservice to the people that need it, you know? And, and so you're absolutely right. They're, 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 the worlds are colliding <laughs> as, yep. as we progress through. Very cool. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I think, the reason that most of us are drawn into that space of helping people is because of our own pain and the big, well, I don't know if this equates, but if the pain's big, then, then your ability to help people is big. And mm -hmm. I think people, I, I don't know if you've experienced this, maybe you don't do sort of as sort of tailored social mm -hmm. media now, but when I put out my posts about the bad stuff that's happened, that's the mm -hmm. stuff that gets the best engagement because people are mm -hmm. like, Oh right, really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, like you said, I've made mistakes again and again. I've had things go wrong again and again and again. But the desire to then come out the other side is what helps you to be 
better at what you do. Yeah. And it's because people connect with humans, you know, we're all human. And if we can connect that, have a connection with other people, I think a lot of people love it when we're just vulnerable on social media. Like, you know, it doesn't matter if you've got hundred followers or a hundred thousand followers, if you can show your vulnerability, people are like, Oh, Ian's a real person. Chloe's a real human. She has good days, bad days too. You know, yeah. I'm not saying do a Facebook live of you crying your eyes out. I've done that once before. I would not recommend it. It's one of those things. I think it can just help us show that not not everything is sunshine and roses and perfect all the time yeah absolutely so so where where's the turning point so you said that uh you went you went through that time and then you started to get some help was it just a gradual step or was there a breakthrough moment or like how did it unfold for you after that yeah so i wouldn't say it was a turning point it was a turning point but it wasn't a quick thing so I'd gone on this journey and I started healing myself. And I'd say the last month of my leave, I was starting to feel a bit better. And I had started studying psychology, which is relevant to this because I was high achiever, wanted to understand what was going on in my brain. When I had been depressed, I don't remember this, but my mum remembers it really well. Apparently, everyone kept offering me self-help books. And apparently I said to her, if someone gives me another self-help book, I'm going to throw it at them <laughs> because I was like, I do not want to read any more self-help books about anything to do with this. I just want to know what's oh, happened. The irony of what you're doing now. <laughs> Isn't it? Yes. Right. Isn't it? I'm like, yeah, let's just publish more self-help books. And apparently I said to my mom in my depression, one day I'm going to write a book about this and I'm going to tell people not the facts, not the psychology, but I'm going to tell them the real stuff behind it. Um, and that's what then I then did four years later. And I don't remember, even when I was writing the book, my mom said, you do know you've always planned this. I was like, did I? You know, <laughs> the high achiever in me must have thought, there's got to be a pl- there's got to be a result out of here somewhere, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I started journaling my process and I started learning psychology. And that was the big turning point for me because my high achiever wanted to understand in my brain, well, what's actually happening? What is going on? You know, people say it's a chemical imbalance. Well, what does that mean? And how, how can I fix it? I studied neuro-linguistic programming, wanted to understand like the user manual of our brains. And that was when it changed. So then when I went back into the corporate world, I was nowhere near the same person as I'd left. And it just was not the same. It just felt so different. Um, and then the real turning point for me was then as I was back, the company I'd been working for had been transitioning and obviously being gone for six months, they'd be making loads of plans. And basically my role didn't really exist anymore. And then flash forward a few months, I was made redundant. Oh, so they had to let enough time pass that it was uh, not too ruthless, mm-hmm. but uh, they'd, already, they'd already planned it by the sound of it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that must have been a setback in itself, was it? Or did that mm-hmm. actually, yeah? Oh, God, yeah, it sent me right back. I wouldn't say as far back, but the one thing, when I'd say about two to three months left of my time off and my sick leave, the only thing getting me through it was pushing back to getting to my, I want to find my old self again. That was constantly, I don't know if anyone can relate to that, but I want to be the old me. How can I find the old me back? Little did I know that she wasn't there anymore, nor that was healthy to try and go back there anyway. Um, And so the person I knew had been great at my job and I wanted to prove that I could still get back to work. So the sole thing I was focusing on big thinker vision was just get that result just get back into the workplace just prove myself so then when I came there and then was made redundant it was like what now and it it just set me back but I had more tools in my toolkit to handle it nice. so it was like well actually I journaled it out did I even want that job you know what are my values that I've now found and how are they align? Ah. that job didn't align anymore so that's why I didn't feel the same coming back and that's when this whole like I think I'd love to help people with this uh, the whole journey started and the it was actually the medical professionals when I when I got made redundant they said look we can sign you off again if you want because you know this is another loss it it would meet the definition you've had depression in the past and they said look we can either you know you've got two options you can either go and get another job or we can sign you off and just have you know even more time off on paid leave and I was sat there going I I don't really want either of these you know I'm 24 years old I and what they were implying as well they didn't say it legally they can't but they basically said just get an easy job you know just like get something where you don't have to stress yourself you know that's probably the best for your future and I was sat there going I'm 24 years old I'm such a high achiever I'm so stubborn I'm so determined I didn't want either of these options so I just created a third and started my business and everyone thought it was absolutely crazy they were like you've got you just had depression you've just lost your job you're in no fit state to start a business and I was like watch me (laughs) here we are love it and when I said before, it's probably five or six years since we chatted, just thinking about it, the, the 
pandemic three years, which has skewed our memory. It's probably getting closer to nine, ten years because it wouldn't have yeah. been too long after this stage, would it? No, it was. I think it was straight after. I think we yeah, met. Wow. We met must must have been six months since. I think I don't. Yeah, about six months of being in business. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Ooh, lots changed since then. If you look back in hindsight, would the timeline match up with the suppressing depression around what you said, like the, with the separation of your parents? Oh, yeah, definitely. So I, I didn't realise at the time the impact that my the divorce my parents had had on me. So tiny bit of context, they were I was an only child and they divorced when I was 10 and they didn't properly speak until my 21st birthday. Whoa. After that. So I was sort of the middle person. I'd be planning which house I'm staying at. And, you know, they didn't know any different at the time. So I don't, you know, they had the best they had with what they could. What they had done was they wanted me to have the most stable environment and not miss out on seeing either of them. So I basically moved house every day. So it was like one day at my mum's, one day at my dad's, one day at my mum's, one day at my dad's. Now, what I know is that's maybe not the most stable environment for a child, but they didn't know any different. Neither of them had gone through it before. And so what I learned was I was constantly adapting and I was constantly changing because I was changing locations, you know, how my dad was, how my mum was very different. And so I'd that was where my people pleasing was learned from such a young age, because in order to please my mum, I had to do this. In order to please my dad, I had to do this. And they were both in pain. They were both so suffering with the divorce, but neither of them talked about it. Kids are very intuitive. We know that. I didn't know that at the time, how much I learned and picked up from that. And that just completely, you know, the the only way I saw them both happy at times was when I did well. So I got a good grade. Chloe's, so Chloe, you're fantastic. I did this well. You're great. And so I learned that me being a high achiever made them happy. Hence the journey onto, I want to get the best job. I want to, I can't go to university. I'm going to prove everyone wrong. I want to get, you know, I want to be a manager. I want to be a director. And yeah. And the fast pace, right? Yeah. You're literally jumping from one environment to the next every single day. Yeah. Like, phew. So you, it'd be interesting. You probably don't have a necessarily have a memory of it because I always thought that these patterns were created at a much younger age, and maybe they were, but really noticeably reinforced through that time, like, yeah. and, and amazingly. Mm. It's something that really shines a light on something I say on here all the time is like, it's not your fault. Like these circumstances mm. that, have, that have led you to this very moment of so much of a product of things that just out of your control, like you're, you're a child doing the best that you can with mm. parents who are also doing the best that they can and stuff happens. It, it gets you mm. off track. Yeah. You then went, from if the dog could settle down for a sec, you just, see that, buddy. <laughs> you just went you went then from um into a space where you at some point there you got another i got a relationship a mm-hmm. uh, serious relationship now you said we before we jumped on we did the sort of fast version but you said that um that that also um didn't end very well. Mm-hmm. Do you see the link between what unfolded for your parents as well in any yeah. way? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So what I learned was because I'd never seen a healthy relationship, and I don't mean that in a, in a harsh way to my parents, you know, they both loved each other, but they just weren't a good fit. And so, you know, from an age of 10, both of them have gone their separate ways, both then trying to find their own journeys again and find themselves again. I'd never been around a, pair, a couple that, what love looked like, if that makes sense. I'd yeah. never, and I, being an only child, didn't have like, I wasn't very close to the rest of my family, quite isolated. I never saw aunties and uncles who looked like a good relationship, you know? So I was then always looking for that. And I had been in a relationship with someone for four and a half years, thought that was it. You know, I think we'd got together when we were, I was 18, 19. Um, and I was like, you know, match made in heaven, both got great jobs, bought a house together, you know, was on the, the, the narrow road to the future, kids, family, everything. And um, and I was, what I've learned now was I was trying to find this stable home with a family and a house and a partner and everything I didn't have growing up. But to the point where I always wanted to be the best girlfriend. You know, I was very, you know, people pleasing. Oh, sure, you want to go and party with everyone? Off you go, I'll be home when you're ready, you know. And what that then transpired in was him being quite unfaithful. And he was unfaithful behind my back for about three months uh, with a a close friend of mine, actually. 
And so when that whole thing came about, I then found that was the, what I've now learned was the main trigger that triggered my whole depression coming in the first place. Mm. Because then what happened was that was where, you know, I wasn't in denial because anything, everything was good, but that was when my big, you know, people say there's a big event that usually triggers such a breaking point. That was it because everything I thought I knew, I thought I'd had a great relationship. I thought I had a great home. I thought I had great friends. It was like the whole thing came crumbling down. And what I've now learned was that the trauma I experienced in that was me thinking, oh my God, I failed like my parents did. It was like, they couldn't manage a relationship not no fault of either of their own, by the way, like they're both very happily in other relationships now, but that was my thought process unconsciously, which I've learned was that I've learned that behavior. And I, I remember because it was so severe, the cheating, a lot of my friends were like, as if you're even considering staying there because we didn't have kids, we weren't married. It wasn't like we had that. I think it's different when there are other things involved other than a house, we didn't have ties. And um, and I genuinely believe the only reason I considered it was because I didn't want to I didn't want to leave and have the same pattern as my parents. I was so adamant I wanted this really healthy relationship and I wanted it to look good and I wanted the house to be good and everything. And then in the end, I did walk away because I was like, this is just not this isn't right for me. And uh, yeah, it was a big lot of trauma, but I didn't know at the time because again, results focused brain went on right. Let's just get a new place and let's just practically deal with this and. Yeah. Mm. And I imagine the high performer in you didn't want to admit defeat, right? No, I can still make this work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And even worse, when it when <laughs> such a funny story now, we laugh about it because I actually do speak to both of them now. It's quite funny. Um, at the time when it all happened, we had a very close group of friends. So our whole friendship group sort of like went separate ways. And I remember we had a friend's birthday party about a month later. And I was like, I'm going to this birthday party because everyone thinks I'm damaged right now. Everyone is looking at me, you know, feeling sorry for me and wondering how Chloe is. And you're going to be going because you're a social butterfly and you like to be around everyone. So this is what's going to happen. I remember having a conversation with him on the day. I said, look, we're going to go into this pub. We're going to see everyone at the party and everyone's going to be watching to see how we react. So we're both going to go to the bar. You're going to buy me a drink. We're going to cheers and then we're going to go our separate ways. But we're going to have a smile on our face. And he said, okay. And we did it. And you know what? And it was hilarious because every, we walked in, everybody just watched to see what was going to happen. You know, it's a bit like people checking the dynamic of a room, you know? And we had the drink, to be fair to the guy, he bought me a drink, cheers me, and we went our separate ways. But the whole energy changed. And it was like, okay, we can all relax now. They're fine. But what I learned, that was my people pleaser again. Because I wasn't fine. I was living. I was so frustrated at the person. But I thought, I don't want to lose my friends. I don't want people to feel uncomfortable, which I think when we go through grief, we're often thinking of other people. I can't tell them. It will make them feel uncomfortable. I didn't want our friends to feel uncomfortable. I also didn't want him, the guy that cheated on me, to feel uncomfortable. I wanted him to still have a normal life. And so I just le- realized I was doing this whole pattern again and again of just pleasing to make him feel comfortable and everyone else feel comfortable when I was not comfortable at all. Mm. Two things come up there. Even presenting to the world, you wanted to make sure that was a high performance. So you you strategized and you planned and and put all that in place. The other thing is is another thing that I've I've seen with grief and and particularly for the highly sensitive people like yourself is even in those dark moments, more worried about what's going on for everyone else than -hmm. what's going on for yourself, which I guess is another form of suppression, right? Yeah. Yeah. Is that something that shows up in other ways as well? Like mm. putting other people like, cause I know as a reformed people pleaser myself, it can still grab you at those moments where you're like, why am I, am I doing this for me or am I doing this for someone else? So, yeah. so is there, is there a good example of that where that might still play out at times? Yeah, all the time. I think especially when you're in a caring business like we are, you know, we're around other people that care where we, we support other people. It can creep in a lot. I've noticed it when I'm working with clients and I want them to book their book to get done and then they miss a deadline. I go, oh, do you know what? We'll just try and squeeze it in anyway. You know, and that's a small thing. But if it impacts me working late, it impacts me asking the team to work late. One thing I've noticed that catches me is I'll never ask the team to people, please. I'll always people, please. So I've noticed that if it's them that has to work late, I'll be like, no, we can't do it. And I'm very protective of our team with our clients. I'm like, sorry, you missed your deadline. I'm not going to ask the team to work a weekend because of my boundaries around them. Um, 
but I've noticed with myself, I'm not quite as there yet. You know, even like this interview, you know, getting up really early, I'm like, no, I'd love to chat to you in, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things, but I, I've noticed, you know, you mentioned, it's like, am I doing it for me or am I doing it for them? And I've got to check in on that. Like, I love doing this. So this I'm doing this for me. But there's so many times that I'll be like, like I, I speak on a lot of events and I, I'm, I'll travel for a whole day, pay to stay in a hotel, go to an event. And, I, and I'm just like, oh, hang on, am I doing this? Am I speaking on their stage for them or me? Like, is this going to give me, you know, feedback, a good result, whatever. But I find that there is that balance of that checkpoint because it's a it's a habit. I and mean, for me, it was formed at such a young age. You know, it takes a while to catch yourself and go, hang on, is this is this a me or them? And my checkpoint is normally if I say yes to this or to them, does that mean I'm saying no to myself? Mm, that's a good way of looking at it. Yeah, and I, and I find that no matter how much you continue to get better at boundaries, there's always another layer to it. Mm-hmm. And the one I'm working through at the moment is the people pleasing through, like taking on other people's stuff. Like, and that's something I've worked on for years and years and years. But it's like at the nth degree. Like, I have the ability to be able to tune into what people are going on, but mm-hmm. I can choose not to. Yeah. It's just that validation from, like you said, from a young age that it's always been validated. So how do I find another way of validating that? Mm-hmm. Fascinating space. And, again, I guess it's what drives us on to continue to try and improve so that we yeah. we can be better, which, of course, then flows through onto the other people. That's, so that's a great question. Is this actually happy? Is this going to make me happy? Mm-hmm. Is this doing this mm-hmm. for me? I wanted to ask you another question around your own strategy because – fast-paced people can often find it hard to slow down. Mm-hmm. So what strategies do you put in place? Because I know you've worked hard at this, mm-hmm. to slow yourself down and to be able to give yourself that space to be able to switch off. Yeah. Oh, God, it is. And it's a constant battle, honestly. And people sound like it's such a, it's such a great problem to have. It can be really challenging. So I, I've, I'd sort of describe it. I feel like I live my life on a treadmill that's going too fast. So if anyone's ever experienced that at the gym where you're walking and it's a bit too fast, you can't go like, should I slow it down? Should I not? That's how I feel I live my life. You know, I send a voice note to someone and they're like, God, this is on 1.5 already and I can't slow it down. But everything is so fast. Even when I talk on news or speak on stage, I've got to slow myself. So I, it is a constant thing. A couple of key things I do is just daily habits. I don't believe that there is one thing you can do that will change it forever. It's a con- constant thing because it's a constant way of life. So for me, it's so, so mentioned a lot, but for me, it's journaling and meditating. I do it every morning without fail. Yeah. Um, I also added a new thing, which I haven't done today because I got really early today, but I normally go for a walk in the morning at half an hour. It's the first thing I do in the morning. So no matter, and I travel so much, no matter where I am, before I go into my hotel, I check out what's around me and I'll do a 20 minute, half an hour walk. So within 10 minutes of waking up, I'll just go and just be somewhere outside with nature. It might be raining, especially in the UK, it rains a lot. <laughs> it might it might be, you know, sun. And those sort of things just bring me back to the moment. So I would say they're my three daily habits, no matter what. Um, and then the other thing is my boundaries, but time boundaries. Because everyone has the same like, amount of time in the day. We all talk about it, right? We've all got 24 hours in the day. But what I've noticed, people who do are high performing or have, you know, strong need to succeed is they will try and do more in less time because that's the feeling of succeeding. I need to tick things off my to do list. So instead of working a five hour day or a seven hour day, we'll go oh, do 12 hours. I can stretch that muscle. And I have stretched that muscle. Now. I can do 16 hour days comfortably, which is not healthy and I do not recommend it. So oh. I've had to physically put markers in my diary where I've blocked out off from after five o'clock on, a, on a, an evening and before the morning. And there might be times where, like this where I'll move it because of something I'm passionate about, but I'm so strict on that. And I've had to actually gray it out in my calendar. Like you can't book anything on top of that. And it's just respecting that time and time again. Yeah, so good. It's usually counterintuitive. Like and just because mm-hmm. you're good at it and just because you can do it, it doesn't mean you should. And high performance done the right way will be positive but high Mm -hmm. performance done to the extreme it always has a negative payoff i actually did a bit of high performance stuff posting like i literally recorded it just before we came on which is fascinating but the people listening to this would have got it a couple of weeks ago and it was exactly that on that like you, you can you can get like there are great performers and high achievers all over the place 
But if they're pushing themselves too hard, it's always going to come with a trade-off, whether mm-hmm. it's impacting family, whether it's impacting their, their friends, their health, mm-hmm. all of these things. So those two things that you mentioned, well, those three things, right, exercise as well. I'm so mm-hmm. glad you brought that up. That's why I had the big beaming smile because the, the long-term listeners hear me talk about journaling and meditation all the time. Because if you are not ready to get help from someone else, then those are the two key skills. So I, I'm glad you shared that. Here's a high performer sharing those two skills. <laughs> the main things. Uh, fantastic. Can you share with us, you said saying no is so important. Now, I know that is something that can be so very difficult for people. So how do you build that muscle of being able to say no it, particularly when you're a people pleaser and it find that so difficult. Yeah. So the first thing is create time. Most of us say yes straight away without thinking. It's like someone says, how are you? I'm great. How are you? You're not. Some of us are not great, but we say it anyway. It's autopilot. So when somebody says, can you do this? You can say yes and then think afterwards, actually, oops, I probably should have said no or I'm not sure. So first thing I always say to people is never say yes to anything too quickly whether it's a message, you can read it, don't reply for 20 minutes an hour. If it's on a conversation, you can say, oh, do you know what? It's a great, great idea. I'd love to do it, but I don't want to overcommit. Let me just let you know. Buy time. Because when you have time, then you can check yourself. Because remember, people pleasing is autopilot for many of us. So we need to create space to think about these things. Then when you've created space, the thing I always do, which sounds so cliched, I just check my values. So I'll say, is this in line with my values? So for example, one of my values is flexibility. I love the fact that I can travel to those different places and speak on those stages and be anywhere. But if I'm then stuck to a routine of one thing every day in a certain place, and I'm like, does that allow me to have flexibility? No. So then I'll say no. So it becomes, for me, it becomes easier because it's not my decision, it's my values decision. It's like, sorry, values aren't allowing that. And you know, that's just my way of doing it rather than thinking I'm saying no to that person. It's like, this isn't my decision. Almost a bit like I've got a board of directors that I check in with, which are each of my values. <laughs> and oh, that I just helps that. me. Yeah. And it, and it ties in nicely again with high performance strategies. Like you stick to process because then it takes the emotion out. And so having that values check in is, a, is another mm-hmm. process that will allow you to make a decision without the emotion. Yeah. That's so good. I'm going to use that one. Um, I actually have been thinking as you've been talking, I've been in businesses where the, the values are up on the wall, but they're merely stuff on the wall. Whereas I've got mine in a document and I, and I know them. And if you ask me, I'd dig them out, but I'm like, they need to be there. So I can be running it through that filter every day as well. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Now I mentioned before about the cause and you said, yeah, absolutely. And you're, and you're finding that you're attracting people in there with that similar cause, but is there something beyond that that you'd love to mm-hmm. be able to give back to people who have been through what you've been through mm-hmm. so they don't have to go through the depths that you did? Yeah. Oh, I'm just, it's what, it's such a passion thing. You know, as I said, I, I mostly go on podcasts and speak on stages about book publishing and marketing. And so, you know, when logically people say to me, oh, why are you coming on a podcast talk about grief or depression? Like I could do this all day because for me, it makes that pain worth it. So if I can tell or speak on stage and, or on a podcast and tell people, you know, you might feel damaged now, but I promise you there is a way out if you follow the steps, you know, I, it is absolutely nothing to do with my business, but I could do it all day because I just think we don't need to suffer in silence. And I think a lot of people say, you know, talk about it. You know, it's okay not to be, it's, it's okay not to be okay. I actually disagree. I don't think it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to not feel 100%, but it's not okay to sit there and not be okay. I've said yeah, that a times. It's a bit weird now, but you get my gist. It's like, yeah. I think the worst thing we can do is one, try and talk to someone who's maybe not supportive or because they're struggling with the idea of it or two, not want to tell anyone because the world we live in now says, oh, it's okay not to be okay. It's okay to just sit there and be sad. Well, no, it's not because every day of your life is worth living. And that's such a cliched phrase, but you've got to get through this stuff. So exactly like you said, Ian, I always say to people, you know, even if you don't want to talk about it or you don't have anyone to talk to, you know, you've always got a journal. You've always got something you can write down. You've always got something you can process. Ask yourself curious questions. That's one of my other values is curiosity. I'm so nosy and I'm nosy of myself. I'm like, why did I do that? How did I do that? Where did that come from? You know, and I'm just so curious and I unpack the layers on my own now in my journal. So I just, for me, I just want to, I want, if I can talk to more people like this every single day and just help other people get inspired and feel different, or even just like, take that 1% away where they think, do you know what? I'm actually not broken then yeah, it's all worth it. 
Fantastic. Now, Chloe, where can people find out more about your story and if they're so inclined, get their book published? Oh, how exciting. So um, first of all, I'm on all social media channels, Chloe Beeson Official. Um, Also, I have actually written a book about my journey of depression. It's got absolutely nothing to do with my book publishing business, nothing to do with business at all in there. Um, However, you can have a look at it, grab a a copy of it. It's on Amazon, it's on Barnes & Noble, also all the usual platforms. It's called Determined and Dangerous. I wrote it four years ago, and we've recently just uh, republished it with some new extra value in there that uh, I've learned on my journey. So Obviously, as I said, absolutely nothing to do with my book publishing business other than the fact it is a book, but it has helped thousands of people. So, yeah, I would love for you guys to grab your copy and I uh, can't wait to hear what you'll think. Love it. Nothing and yet everything at the same time. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's one of those things you're like, oh, God, how's it all <laughs> Fantastic. Chloe, thank you so much. We talked about before we wanted to get this into an hour because you've got somewhere you've got to go. Uh, was never going to be in doubt fast paced but to the point and so much value thank you so much no problem Ian thank you so much for having me you're welcome I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Grief Code podcast thank you so much for listening please share it with a friend or family member that you know would benefit from hearing it too if you are truly ready to heal your unresolved or unknown grief let's chat email me at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com you can also stay connected with me by joining the Grief Code community at ianhawkinscoaching.com forward slash the grief code. And remember, so that I can help even more people to heal, please subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform.